0: Welcome to the Spirit Lake Wellness Podcast and part three of three of our series comparing addiction treatment in the United States and the United Kingdom with Dr. Brian Kidd. This week, our panelists will be discussing factors that contribute to effective addiction treatment and what is effective addiction treatment.
1: Can I just say, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. So is, is that because of what, what John was mentioning about buprenorphine then becoming a, a legitimate treatment which doctors yeah. apply so that's what you mean by that mm. yes Cause, yeah. cause I, I actually listened to one of your podcasts where there was a discussion about buprenorphine and there was a kind of comparison between buprenorphine and methadone and uh, I, i'm an old fashioned doctor and i kind of think methadone is a great drug um and the reason i think it's a great I, I, and interestingly people who were who were ex um, um addicted people who were now working as counsellors or nurses or whatever within my first service, uh, argued that methadone was a terrible drug, and the main reason it was a terrible drug was because it had no of the none of the attributes that that heroin had. Um, it, it didn't it didn't actually give you anything other than stopping things getting bad. So it gave you this long n- non withdrawal, but it was quite a heavy drug, uh, and people were looking for a drug which which approximated to the experience they had when they took heroin or something like that. Um, but we, methadone was, was the standard in, in our services. And when um, um, Subutex came in and then Suboxone, um, there was a big issue in the UK because we had had a lot of misuse of a drug called Temgesic, which was a painkiller, um, um, which was a Buprenorphine-based, but it was like 0.2 milligrams of buprenorphine per tablet. Very heavily misused in the UK and in some parts of Scotland, it was the it was the drug of choice mainly because you could drop a tablet in a syringe in water, shake it up, and inject it. Um, so it was very convenient and easy, um, and and so on. And and people had this idea that it was safer because it had the partial agonist, partial antagonist. Um, effect so there was a feeling that maybe you don't overdose and of course you can overdose it's just a different kind of overdose. Um, So when when Subutex came in it didn't take off and then the the evidence base started to follow the appearance of Subutex so you know there's been quite a lot of or quite a long term um, Cochrane review process um, under I'm trying to remember who it was I think it's Richard Matic who in Australia who has done this you know, thousands of people, um, uh, or th- th- studies which contain thousands of people have been uh, put into this systematic review comparing the effectiveness of buprenorphine against methadone in terms of a number of clinical outcomes. And I think that's been quite interesting because what it shows is that if you stick, so if you start on a buprenorphine based treatment and you stick, you do better but you're less likely to stick. If you go on a methadone uh, treatment, you're more likely to stick. Um, so, and in, and in the end, it's whether you stick in treatment or not, whether you do well. Um, and the the whole, what people have, I think, not got on top of yet is why some people don't do very well on buprenorphine. And I personally think that's something to do with induction because it's it is a diff- more difficult drug to in- induct people onto, but I think it's also because m- in, when I was working in Dundee, my patients wanted to be out of their face. So they would come in and they wanted to be intoxicated. They were intoxicated and they if you were offering them a treatment which didn't allow them to be intoxicated, they were unlikely even to stick around for a few, for a few days or weeks. So, um, I, I, again, I don't know how methadone is used particularly in, in the USA, or, um, but, but in, in the UK, there was a lot of concern about methadone-related deaths because methadone is a pretty powerful drug and it just looks like a syrup and people just neck it. So it can, it, can, it can be a bit dangerous, a bit hazardous. So when the GPs were being trained how to be addiction people or how to prescribe drugs, uh, they were told start low, aim high. So they started on very, very low doses, and they very, 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 gradually increased them to an appropriate dose over weeks. And during all that time, people would continue to just use their heroin. And 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 in fact, by the time they're now on 80 milligrams of methadone or 100 milligrams of methadone, they're still using a gram of heroin, and their and their dependency is now two grams of heroin <laughs> equivalent. And they've got a much further journey to go Um, What I and some of my colleagues did was try to bring in ways of safe induction with much more observation um, and much more, um, yeah, just support, really. So if I had a patient, I I managed to set up a a treatment room in my service, which is right in the middle of Dundee City, which is a, a kind of dirty little city in Scotland. It's a city that's full of, it's got a very high level of deprivation. Um, one, Some of the most deprived areas in Scotland are there. It's kind of like a tiny little Glasgow. Same problems, sectarianism, um, post-industrial, you know, um, post-ship building, all that kind of stuff. Um, um, and what we were able to do was to bring people in and start them on methadone on day one. And there was a doctor there all the time, there was nurses monitoring people all the time. Our first day dose was never more than 40 milligrams, but the second day dose might be 80 milligrams. Uh, and in that first week, we would get we would get people up to 80 milligrams of methadone. Now, I w- I've worked with pain specialists who've just about had a coronary when I've mentioned having people on 80 milligrams of methadone. Um, but in my highest prescribed dose of methadone in my career was 400 milligram. Um, and tolerance being what it is, that guy was um, walking and talking and doing all the normal things that people do. Um, and uh, he could tolerate it and you could do tolerance tests on him and he could tolerate 400. And if you didn't give him 400, he had lots and lots and lots of issues. Um, so, it's pop- so we would try to get people up to an optimal dose for that individual quite quickly, but we also tried to engage them in real supportive counselling, harm reduction counselling, which was mainly based around, I suppose, just behavioural modification, just simple behavioural tasks. Sometimes the behavioural task was, please come back tomorrow, um, um, and uh, and that was it and if they did that you would say wow you came back that's fantastic now could you come back tomorrow not quite so intoxicated um, and and over the course of a few days you'd go from a person asleep in your clinic trying to sort of waken them up <laughs> to convince them that it was a good idea to start treatment by, the, by a week's time you would have a person who was still intoxicated you know they still had that intoxicated methadone thing, but they could interact with you, they knew who you were, they knew why they were there, they knew what they were doing. They weren't ready for the deeper psychotherapies yet, but we were able to modify their behaviour. And I do think that behavioural therapy, old-fashioned behavioural therapy, behavioural modification, is one of those things which right across psychiatry has kind of been lost as a as a useful tool to help you know modify for example a depressed person's experience when you're you know starting someone on an antidepressant if you're also putting together a behavioral program which is about them starting to 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 to, to change their relationship with their life in a very simple but not easy way um i think that's really important and i think in addictions that's kind of lost Getting to the deeper psychotherapies, as I say, in in, in Scotland has proven, not just in Scotland, in the UK, has proven to be um, extremely difficult. I mentioned that I was involved in the 2017 National Guideline, which, just for your reference, looks like that. So it's a big tome, Uh, the Orange Guideline, it's called. Now, they've been being published since 1986, and there have been five, The one in 2017 was the first with a chapter about psychological therapies. That says it all, as far as I'm concerned. The good news is it does say that somebody thought it was important and we actually had psychologists on the group for the first time putting it all together and going through the evidence base and making sure that we have recommendations about evidence-based therapies. But it also says that not until 2017, had a UK government guideline for treatment services mentioned psychological therapies.
2: Wow, wow! So, uh, Dr. Hayes, it's a it's a pity he can't be on. But Dr. Hayes and I ran a study over a five year period uh, with 275 patients, and uh, the idea was uh, uh, to give them buprenorphine suboxone and this was in the days when uh, most people were hung up on oxycodone or actually heroin as opposed to the fentanyl that they're on now and so induction was much easier um, and uh, with just the medicine alone we had about a 17 percent success rate 13 uh, percent long term it just really didn't work out for people for for just the medicine alone Medicine plus education about uh, substance, uh, how the substance affected you and your emotions, and uh, what we call brief uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, Actually, we got uh, two thirds retention, treatment retention rate. And um, so then there were some people that, despite that, continued to struggle. And so then we. Uh, if they were able to access it and did access psychotherapy, then the treatment retention rate was 85%, uh, which was, I think, outstanding. Um, So, yeah, it demonstrates clearly the value of, of one, education uh, about the drug and how it works, and then, two, uh, the benefits of basic stress relief management techniques that people can learn and practice. So you brought up an interesting point about uh, yes, people abusing buprenorphine, and in Eastern Europe, I think it was like the drug of choice for a long time, uh, especially if you used it IV. Um, so the drug heroin crosses the blood brain barrier more rapidly than methadone or buprenorphine, and the uh, how rapid how rapidly a drug crosses the blood-brain barrier and triggers that surge of dopamine determines how much euphoric effect you're going to have. And so with methadone, um, no. What you see mostly is dampening the effects of adrenaline. So uh, I think of opiates as primarily doing two things, one, it boosts your dopamine level and two, it dampens the effects of adrenaline. And so methadone mostly dampens the effects of adrenaline, uh, displacing a lot of the withdrawal symptoms. So buprenorphine uh, has an additional property that makes it kind of interesting, which is that it blocks the kappa opiate receptor. So um, I think it was the the late 60s, early 70s, they had identified the opponent process model of addiction where all of the substances of abuse would trigger this release of dopamine, and then some unknown opponent process would, would dampen th- those effects over time and then result in lower-than-normal dopamine levels. And I think it was 2009, Dr. Mysels, uh talked about the kappa opiate receptor and dynorphin. And so one proposed mechanism for the opponent process is dynorphin, uh, which occupies the kappa receptor, and that is blocked by uh, both naltrexone and buprenorphine. And that may be one of the mechanisms by which cravings are reduced. But yeah, you're right. People that are looking for that euphoric effect, uh, they are not likely to get as much of a euphoric effect with buprenorphine as, as they would with with heroin. And the advantage, the appeal that a lot of my patients have for methadone is it? Oh, I can still get high. I can still continue to use it. This, this, yeah. So yeah, the way uh, uh, we do it is we uh, discuss with the patient the the three major medications: naltrexone, buprenorphine, and methadone, and try to let them make their choice as to as to what they prefer. And um, so yeah, in here in the U.S. the Uh, The initial dose of methadone at a methadone clinic is limited by federal law to 30 milligrams. And although you can give an additional 10 milligrams in two hours if the patient is still awake and having symptoms, that's rarely done. So then the, the increase in the dose is very gradual, usually like once a week, maybe 10 milligrams. The usual target is 80 milligrams a day and uh, then they go up from there, whatever it takes to suppress the, the drug use. And um, so yeah, it's a maddeningly slow process. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's how yeah. things are here. But again, yeah. you we can't prescribe the methadone unless it's for pain, but we're mm-hmm. discouraged from doing that. And so the methadone, you have to go to the clinic every day. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, that's, 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 sorry, Kathy, I was going to start speaking.
0: It's okay. I was struggling to unmute. Um, Do you think that part of that, John, is because of our lingering connection to the abstinence plan? Because I know, you know, boots on the ground, methadone, we've always kind of viewed it as, yeah, well, they're still getting high. They're just getting a prescribed dose. So it doesn't it doesn't shift any of the underlying issues. It just gives them a more acceptable coping mechanism than or possibly less risky mechanism, but it doesn't really change anything. And you know, so I'm just wondering, is that is that rooted in our uh, fondness of the abstinence model?
2: Um, I don't think so. Um, I think that uh, yeah, people do get, Uh, some euphoric effect from their dose of methadone, uh, but I think it's not the the main thing that they're after is that dampening of distress. Uh, Dr. Kidd would would be more familiar with this than I. Um, So uh, in fact, that distress is dampened to such a point that it's thought that some people that are on higher doses of methadone uh, don't benefit as much from psychotherapy because they're basically inert anyway. <laughs> There's no distress to learn to manage. And uh, yeah,
0: the, the other question I had. And this has just kind of been floating around. Um, the the tendency to take people that are being using medically assisted. Um, interventions for addiction. The the understanding that I've always had is that you have them on it, you get stabilization, and then you start to taper down, taper down, taper down, taper down until they're drug free. Um, In the private companies tended to taper less than the other companies. And so I'm wondering if that was that just dumb luck on my part to notice that or was that a trend?
2: So, uh, the initial Data 2000 Act limited prescribers to 30 patients, and many times they were overwhelmed with people needing treatment, and then that was expanded to 100 if you had been prescribing buprenorphine for more than a year, but still the demand was overwhelming. Um, And so, many prescribers in order to service these patients that needed treatment uh, but they weren't allowed to treat would try to taper their patients and there was much more enthusiasm for that when there were those limitations Uh, I myself had uh, limitations I actually got visited by the DEA Uh, I had some patients on buprenorphine for pain and they said nope that counts to your number and so I had to wait uh a long time and i had a waiting list and i ended up with 114 people on my waiting list and uh parents would come to me in tears worried about their children some of whom would die because i was not allowed to treat them and that's that creates a lot of distress and so yeah i would encourage those that were able to taper and yeah i would tend to promote that
0: so the tapering was more of a an accommodation to what the institution was was demanding because what i was hearing dr bryan say was that keeping people on it longer had a higher success rate that then tapering kind of increased the risk
2: yes i okay Yeah, I mean, in, in the inner city, there's a saying Sometimes that taper equals relapse <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, can, can, I, can I just can I just say? I mean, I, I think this is really interesting again because I think it does it, it shows a really interesting kind of kind of historic cultural difference. Um, I don't know if you came across there was a wonderful I, I found it a really useful document. It, it, when when recovery was starting to happen in the UK, which would have been around about the first five years of the millennium, and there was a book which was authored by Bill White. Um, called recovery orientated methadone maintenance um which it was co-authored by someone I've forgotten her first name but her second name was Moyer Torres and she was a, a very high functioning lawyer and drug addict um who was on methadone and I saw that she she unfortunately died of something completely different but what she um was the the the, the the point she was making was that she was one of these people who, who, who did daft stuff and, and got involved in drugs and it was, a, it was very difficult for her. She was on a methadone program, which meant she had to sort of stand in some alleyway going up to some window to get some methadone, which she took in a supervised way. And it was all very unpleasant for her in, in, her, in her level of functioning. So every so often she would decide to stop so she would taper or detox or stop relapse her life would fall apart she would go back on methadone she would rest everything would be fine and she would be very stable she'd be functioning she was she was a barrister she was you know she was a very high functioning um lawyer and her husband was also a, a high functioning lawyer and I've seen interviews with him uh, after her death where he was describing this interesting dilemma because the assumption of course is that it's a group of people who you know it doesn't make any difference. It's about they're not going to work, not going to function anyway, and they're just going to stand in a queue getting their methadone and then go and do whatever ne'er-do-wells do. And that's a sort of, that isn't my opinion, I hope you realise that, but that's the kind of view, the kind of rather condescending view, I think, that a lot of harm reduction type services have. People can't recover. And what Bill White, who has has, has had different, I'm sure you've heard of him, he's, he's had very different faces about addiction through the years, but he became this kind of champion of um, harm reduction and recovery, and how you could create what he called a recovery-orientated system of care, a ROSC. And a recovery-orientated system of care had, had very clear components. So the assumption was that if somebody needed help, they could access it really quickly, really easily. So if I wake up today and suddenly think, you know what, I've had enough of this. I'm fed up feeling like this. I want some help. It's Saturday, um, but I can go down to the to the um, the drop in, and I can start the process of recovery now by filling in all my information and make and getting recorded in the system and getting an appointment to see a clinician or or I can get some counselling or I can attach myself to something. That process very quickly. Um, comes to a conclusion about what substances a person is having problems with, um, um, what medical treatments may or may not be relevant for that, what they want, what's available to them, and then they get matched to their available treatment. That should happen within a, 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 a fairly protracted time frame. In ROSCS that I've been involved in, it's seven days, so max seven days to treatment. So, um, and that's, that's feasible. That's very feasible if that's what you've got. So you have a third sector of what we we call charities, the third sector. So you have a a charitable organization who have got don't work normal working hours. They've got drop in, they've got outreach and all that kind of stuff. They will mop somebody up off the street. And if that person says, I want, I want help now, they've got a direct line straight into the service. So if they saw somebody today and I went into my office on Monday, there would be a message from Turning Point saying, we've got this person, when can they be seen? And I had a bunch of trained up nurses, um, advanced nurse practitioners who could prescribe controlled drugs. So they would be available that week to make an assessment of that individual. And that individual would then be in for a test dose For a week of uh, observed test dosing of treatment on Monday if they were going to get methadone or buprenorphine. If they were going to be detoxified, we could start that as soon as we could have them in a safe environment to do that. And that could be their home. It could be that a a community psychiatric nurse would go to their home on a daily basis and support them through that with a, a counselor from the third sector organization supporting them. So they're immediately getting access to their intervention they're getting counselling and support, they're getting um, psychoeducation um, and they're getting a treatment and And those are being delivered appropriate to their level of functioning. So, yes, if this is a highly intoxicated individual, things might slow down a little bit, but access to the medical treatment doesn't necessarily slow down. But the the more therapeutic elements might. In some places, we've got a thing which I think you've got in America called Housing First. Have you come, come across that? H- Housing first is a program where they deliver where basically they get you a house um, and everything then comes from there.
2: There's a uh, tiny tiny little bit of that, yeah. but oh my gosh uh, yeah. it's heartbreaking yeah. here in the in the u s what we deal with we have this matrix of insurances uh many of whom will reimburse various places. Uh, but not others. And they, res- they typically restrict services um, to where they can say they, they provide that service, but, oh, then it's not available. Yeah. Um, and then if people are incarcerated, they immediately lose their, their government-sponsored insurance, uh, Medicaid, uh, right. so they don't have insurance. So they get out of uh, uh, incarceration with no health insurance. Um, and so many people just go through this revolving door of showing up, uh, at the emergency room in distress, uh, getting a band aid, and going back to the streets. And, um, in the United States, it's very difficult to get the insurance companies to pay for any kind of an admission, uh, for the treatment of an opiate problem other than uh, severe overdose. In fact, one of the things that happened is back in the 60s, when they were coming up with Medicare, which is the, the sort of the national insurance plan for elderly people, uh, they tacked on Medicaid as an afterthought. But traditionally, the states were responsible for the care of those with me- severe mental illness. And so they would do that in institutions. And they, they didn't want to assume that. So they came up with this, what's called the IMD exclusion, the Institute for the Treatment of Mental Disease. And so as a result, many hospitals have to listen, have to limit the number of psychiatric beds that they have available so that they don't fall into that uh, IMD description. And so um, the result is that there is no residential treatment for the majority of people on, on medical assistance and um, the insurance company matrix makes it very difficult to, to access care.
1: Right, right. OK. Yeah, and
0: housing in general is a giant problem right now. Uh, rents have escalated to the point where it's cheaper to buy a house, except there aren't enough for sale. And so okay. the prices are, are escalating. And there's a lot of people that are homeless.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, what when I'm describing housing first, it's a it's a notion. As I say, there's a, one area in Scotland which is which has developed that kind of model, um, and and it's a it's a it's a, it's a it's quite an exciting model actually, because it's it's basically saying you know if if people have got some place secure to to live, um, it's far more likely. In fact, um, I listened to one of your podcasts. It was somebody who was um. Erica who was being interviewed by somebody and and she talked about well briety, Um which I thought was really interesting and one of the things she said was environment was was everything actually and that was about you know where you're living who's around you all that kind of stuff. So I suppose um uh housing first is like that and I don't want to it's interesting when I was describing that you guys were going oh God, what we've got is this <laughs> what I'm what I'm describing is optimal all right is optimal yes. and what we've actually got is not that. Yeah. So so I so I've worked in services where we have been able to do these things and and I mentioned that there was quite a lot of investment started to come into this field from when the new labor government appeared in the late 1990s and that investment has continued to increase but as that investment has increased the the competition for the resources at a time when remember the services were originally very overwhelmed by numbers has meant that the capacity in the system hasn't really followed the money. Um, so you, you know, what's supposed to happen is people come in through this door, as I've described, and they're able to, wherever that door happens to be, multiple doors, they should be able to access what they need. Um, and then they should be able to continue on their recovery journey. But all the components are not there. So what we often get is people who've man- we've managed to quite quickly get them onto the easy bit. So getting someone onto methadone or getting them onto buprenorphine, relatively easy. If they're really a detox candidate and they really want to be detoxified and they want to be on naltrexone, relatively easy to do that but all the other stuff, not easy to get at all. And if they're on something like methadone or buprenorphine, they're doing well, they're starting to engage with psychological therapies and they can on high doses, it's possible, um, because tolerance is tolerance. Um, But what will happen is that as you start to reduce you will have new challenges as as you described at the very beginning of this talk. That then, you know, you don't you don't go down at 10 milligrams a week or something until you're off. You you bring it you bring it down and then the person crashes and burns, and then you hold it or you push it up very
2: slightly, and then you catch the person and then you polish them up.
1: um the, the journey that i've described should have should have been feasible um there's there's, there's certainly a, a good um a, a massive increase of resources available but there is there's become a kind of dogmatic debate now about um medical treatment versus non-medical treatment and there are there are doctors in uh, you know quite well respected doctors now who will say things like if you uh, you don't detoxify somebody cuz they'll die and what they mean is that um, if, you, if you take somebody off opioid replacement therapy, there's no doubt that their risk of overdose death goes up. Um, I, th- I would have thought there's something about the appropriateness of taking somebody off or the, or the skills involved in taking somebody off. But, um, but so you will find there are, there are areas where doctors will literally not give people the option of coming off their, um, their opioid replacement therapy. Uh, you might have somebody on a recovery journey. I have a, I have a wonderful example I often used when I was teaching. The the, 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 the target dose or the, the effective dose of methadone that people often talk about is 60 milligrams. So they'll say 60 milligrams is an effective dose. Now, there is no evidence for that, as you, as you know. I mean, a bit, what, there, what there is is a sort of general consensus that people are unlikely to stabilize on less than 60 milligrams if they're a significant um, injecting heroin user. So, um, so these GPs were taught, get people up to 60 milligrams. Now, somebody might have a tiny heroin habit. They might feel perfectly well and stop using heroin at 30 milligrams but these doctors would be would be funded to treat within certain standards and one of the standards was to have them on 60 milligrams and if you didn't have them on 60 milligrams you didn't get get paid because you were you were treating them in a substandard way and the the story that i give is of a girl in sterling interestingly enough who i looked after who was a very chaotic young girl really chaotic, lost her kids, all sorts of things. We got her into treatment. She did really, really well. She um, stabilized and wanted to come off. So we gradually reduced her. And she'd gone from 60 or 70 milligrams and she was down to 30 milligrams. And she came to see me at the clinic and she said, look, I want to start my life anew. I'm going to move to Glasgow. It's about 30 miles down the, down the motorway. So I said, that sounds fine. The good news is that Glasgow has GPs who will prescribe methadone for you. So you don't have to wait in a waiting list for the specialist service, the GP led service. All you have to do is find a place you're going to go and live, find the local surgery, go and see your GP, uh, make sure they prescribe. I'll keep prescribing for you until you're sorted out and then get them to give me a phone and I will basically transfer your care over to Glasgow. And you can get on with your wonderful new life. Fantastic! Off she went. A few weeks later, she came back to see me at my clinic, and she was very upset. And the reason she was upset was because she'd gone to the GP. The GP said, "Oh, yep, we prescribed methadone. Not a problem." And she said, "That's great. I'm on 30 milligrams." He said, "No, you're not. You're on 60 milligrams uh, because because 60 milligrams is a therapeutic dose, and this doctor kid has got you on a sub therapeutic dose." So we have a we have a kind of rather simplistic, dogmatic very harm reduction, maintain them on the treatment kind of approach. And just to put that in perspective, the Glasgow um, drug problem service is the largest methadone programme in Europe, they have 10,000 people on methadone. So 50% of the people in treatment in Scotland are in Glasgow. Um, And they're in a service where they're never coming off.
2: (laughs) I've had a little different experience. Uh, with getting people off of opiates, uh, off of maintenance therapy. Um, What I did was I had uh, an open schedule day, uh, which was on Fridays. And if you needed a refill of Suboxone, well, come and see me on Friday. And so I would notice that some people would come in less and less often. And I'd realize, oh, they're reducing their dose. And so then, okay, I would reduce the amount supplied, or reduce to the to a lower dose uh, formula, and um, I would watch as they gradually tapered themselves off, and they would typically taper over about a one to one and a half year period, and just gradually uh, go down to very low doses, or sometimes stop altogether, and so about a third of my patients would eventually do that, and and just not use opiates after that and about a third that uh tapered would uh would lapse back and we just restart them and then the same thing would happen and then some people um if you tapered them they'd relapse and that was about a third and those tended to be the more uh, uh traumatized and distressed individuals that uh that had difficulty i think it's sort of like antidepressants you can uh taper people off and about a third will get depressed and about a third will do fine and about a third, well, they just episodically need treatment. I agree. Very good. So you've looked at a number of our uh, podcasts, Dr. Kidd.
1: Yeah. I find it really interesting because of the fact that um, it's, it's. I mean, it's holistic. I mean, I, I think there's, you know, it's, 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 it's enlightening to have these conversations rather than conversations about, um, you know, just, you know, methadone versus buprenorphine, or, you know, I mean, in Scotland, drug deaths, for example, is a massive thing, and it's a big driver, but it's a driver towards a much more sort of, um, um, monotone treatment, because the what what people are saying is we can stop deaths by getting people into treatment treatment equals getting them on opioid replacement therapy so all we need is a fast track straight into a methadone methadone mainly but an opioid replacement therapy of some sort and most of the other stuff that you're talking about which is recovery orientated um, has never really got moving and certainly hasn't become this recovery oriented system of care has not really become um, uh, a reality which is a shame
2: Yeah, people have noticed here in the U.S. that there is a much higher death rate with the abstinence-only approach, Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. particularly when people get out of incarceration. Um, So, yeah, um, at some point we'll have to discuss ways of reducing death from opioid overdoses and how we go about doing that.
0: Thank you for listening to the Spirit Like Wellness podcast. Spirit Like Wellness is a 501c3 dedicated to health and wellness education. Learn more at spiritlikewellness.org.